Hello, and welcome to the Sawyer Seminar Bites podcast, hosted by the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement. This podcast showcases talks hosted by our Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes, a grant generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. In this episode, we will listen to a talk given by Caroline Miles, a professor of literature and cultural studies at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. All right, well, um, I'll just start by saying that I am not an expert on uh, funding externalization. Um, so my talk is a little off topic, but I definitely see lots of intersections between um, the work that I've been doing and uh, the last two, two talks. Um, so I'm focusing a little more on um, the impact on migrant journeys of externalization, uh, but I definitely do touch on um, economics. Okay, so um, I'm focusing on the US-Mexico border. So just in case some people here don't know, uh, just to give a sort of uh, background on the policies right now, so on February 23rd, the Biden administration proposed a new policy, uh, the so-called transit ban, to replace Title 42, which ended in May, and MPP, uh, also known as Remain in Mexico, which ended in 2021. It is basically now subjecting migrants to new restrictions under Title 8, which is a complicated set of immigration laws. Uh, basically, under this, migrants must request asylum in a third country such as Mexico, or their asylum case will not be heard, they'll be deported and not allowed to enter the US for five years. Uh, other than in exceptional circumstances that most asylum seekers don't meet, non-Mexican asylum seekers can currently only seek asylum by scheduling an appointment to present themselves at the point of entry using a US Customs and Border Control smartphone app called CBP-1, or if they show that they were ineligible to apply for asylum in the transit countries. Biden claims that this is an effort to create safety and order at the border. But as we've heard from the other talks, um, this is really nothing more and as Nick said, uh, to serve long-term interests of the US, which is to keep migrants from reaching the US-Mexico border. The reality is a strained and inadequate system in Mexico to deal with an increasing number of asylum cases, an even more lucrative market for organized crime, more expensive and unsafe journeys for asylum seekers and unsanitary migrant camps at the border. Uh, okay, so just to give uh, credit to my research team, I'm going to be drawing in part on research conducted by myself and my team as part of a National Science Foundation grant called Geographies of Migration and Insecurity at the US-Mexico Border. We have conducted numerous interviews on both sides of the border in the Rio Grande Valley, 
as well as interviews with legal representatives and other service providers. Um, firstly, I think it's well documented that in the case of Mexico, there is inadequate funding to ensure timely and efficient processing of asylum claims. Uh, one report published by Rice University, for example, documents that the increased number of asylum applications has put a great deal of strain on Mexico's refugee assistance agency known as COMA, which is responsible for adjudicating asylum claims and determining refugee status in Mexico. COMA has been underfunded by the Mexican government for several years and its budget has not kept pace with the rising number of applications. While in 2020 and 2021, the budget was increased to close to 2 million, According to Comar officials, this amount is insufficient even for operational expenses. Year after year, the backlog keeps growing with some asylum seekers waiting over two years for the agency to resolve their claims. The report documents that Comar has had to turn to the UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, for funding to strengthen its capacity, which has led maybe to some improvements, but still Comar lacks the capacity to handle the rise in asylum claims. More funding is and will continue to be needed. For instance, in January, Alone, Mexico received 12,863 asylum applications, a 120% increase compared to January 2022. Um, while Mexican law stipulates that a refugee status application be processed in 45 working days, refugees regularly end up having to wait several months and sometimes even longer than a year to receive a determination. If the rise in claims continues and no additional resources are allocated, the agency may find itself in a dire situation that will ultimately result in asylum seekers having to wait even longer to have their claims processed. Uh, but there are other problems for asylum seekers. Based on the interviews we conducted with asylum seekers, this waiting is compounded by a number of other issues that migrants and asylum seekers have to deal with in Mexico while they wait. The US itself deems Mexico unsafe. Asylum seekers we interviewed reported over and over poor and unsafe conditions in Mexico, many of them reporting sleeping outside on the ground, having belongings and money stolen and being sexually assaulted. Many reported being treated badly in detention centers and said the US detention center was the first time they were given a bed, food and felt safe. They have no social or community support in a transit country and are vulnerable to organized crime. Kidnapping and extortion is common, also from the interviews we conducted, it is clearly evident that most asylum seekers have absolutely no idea how the process for having their asylum case heard and considered works. Nobody had previously any advice or instructions. Many of them had papers written in English that they didn't understand, and they didn't understand if and when to show up in an immigration court. And that's just something that we give all our uh, interviewees um, now is a list of resources for uh, understanding that process. Um, I just wanted to add that I know less about the, the processing centers in Guatemala and Colombia, these new centers that the, the US Biden worked with these countries to, to open these processing centers. But from what I have read, it's the same story. Few people are eligible for refugee refugee protection to even start any process 
and the process takes years. There are long waits and often people waiting for answers from these offices end up leaving the country. Uh, people we have interviewed certainly don't report Colombia or Guatemala as being any safer than Mexico. And as one journalist put it, no matter how many centers you have, if the stream of legal pathways continues to be small, then you are creating bottlenecks. Also problematic is the CBP-1 app. While it has been argued that the CBP-1 smartphone app improves access to asylum, research suggests that the app is a further digital barrier. This app is a predominant characteristic of the camp in Matamoros, uh, where me and my team have spent uh, quite some time. Many of the asylum seekers we talked to there have been trying to get an appointment for months. From talking with them, success seems arbitrary. It's a lottery. Some told us the app just doesn't work. Others said there are just no appointments. Other, others told us it depends when you get on the app. If you're lucky in a moment, an appointment will suddenly be available. Um, there, there's reports uh, about this as well. Um, one published by Insight Crime says the app works more like a lottery as tens of thousands of migrants enter the system simultaneously in an effort to secure one of the few appointments made available each day. Uh, what's more, the app only functions for those migrants located in central and northern Mexico. Other research suggests there are glitches. For example, uh, one article argues that the app's facial recognition function fails to consistently recognize migrants with darker skin tones thus creating racialized barriers to seeking asylum. And then there is the way in which externalization empowers criminal gangs and activity, uh, a huge market, a huge econ economy. Most asylum seekers we talked to and interviewed reported journeys fraught with danger, crossing the Darien Pass came up over and over as especially dangerous and expensive. Many asylum seekers witnessed loss of life, many reported witnessing people who couldn't pay get killed, and all reported that a substantial amount of money was needed to make the journey into and through Mexico. A lot of recent reports have found that externalization increases both corruption and crime. Uh, how this one particular report um, from Insight Crime, which is a, a nonprofit think tank. Uh, dedicated to people's rights in Latin America. Um, this report was based on two years of research, including interviews and analysis of data across the Mexican states where human smuggling is prominent. The report claims that the US government's immigration policies and the externalization of immigration enforcement to countries like Mexico have expanded the breadth of official corruption as the US government has increased its reliance on third countries for enforcement and pushed migrants to remain in these countries. Officials from these nations have expanded their illegal operations. These include extortion, kidnapping and human smuggling rackets. One of the major findings Findings was that the prevention through deterrence policies used by the US government have created an increasingly lucrative black market for human smuggling. Uh, transnational criminal networks have assumed greater control over the movement of people and replaced the personalized community-based nature of human smuggling that once existed. Whereas the smuggling of drugs and weapons formerly dominated the cross-border contraband trade, Human smuggling has morphed into one of the most lucrative industries for crime groups. It has also made 
It has also made it increasingly dangerous for migrants who face more risks en route and along the US border. The report interviewed migrants who paid up to 13,000 to get from Guatemala to a US city. Just crossing over the US-Mexico border seems to range from 500 to 2,000. In fiscal year 2022, US authorities encountered just under 2.4 million migrants at the Southwest border. Many of these migrants were encountered more than once, but if we assume that half of them or 1.2 million pay 10,000 in smuggling fees and bribes, the market would be worth close to 12 billion. Um, so I, I, I just, I'm going to uh, uh, go in a slightly more humanities direction here. And I wanted to end by talking a little bit about uh, also the externalization of a troubled American psyche. Uh, because in my opinion, in the case of the US externalization is not just about press pressuring other countries to keep asylum seekers from reaching its border, but can also be seen as part of a large national effort to distance itself from reality. As Henry Lefebvre puts it in the production of space, space is active. And th this is this part is coming from my uh, own observations, field notes, uh, I suppose you could say. Um, at the US-Mexico border, space is very hard at work, naturalizing the border, denying historical and geographical continuum, and performing, regulating, and moderating the bodies and stories that pass through it, and that are transforming it at the same time. While asylum seekers and global narratives are contained through externalization in Mexico, at the border, they remain invisible, removed from sight, relegated to the shadows in enclosed spaces of shelters, detention centers, which in the case of, of one very clo close by to here is, uh, is the like underground um, floor of a parking lot, uh, immigration courts and being undocumented. Um, as well as in colonias, spaces of poverty cut off geographically and technologically. National space and narrative, on the other hand, is produced to be seen and projected, marked by national flags, customs, uniforms and border patrol cars and badges, patrolling open spaces all along the border. A performance of forced criminalization, reminding US citizens that the nation and its security is what matters. When most people think of the US-Mexico border, they think of it as a wall, a linear limit, the boundary where the US begins and ends and the place where US citizens are protected from the criminal other. However, the border is a much larger space through which a wall cuts, a complex militarized space in which the mechanisms of control stretch from ground cameras, often on people's private property, to a militarized airspace, a space of dangerous criminal activity and human smuggling, a national psychological space filled with fear, racism and denial, and for many asylum seekers, a space of undocumented limbo that extends well beyond the wall in inefficient and corrupt immigration courts that use people's trauma to see if they are deserving and a total lack of reasonable orderly legal pathways to US citizenship. The border wall is a spectacle, a national space projecting narratives often fabricated of home, belonging, security, threat, and rightful exclusion. The US only narrate, narrates migrant bodies at the national borderline, detaching them from where they come from, erasing the stories of why they are coming and where they go. 
The long journeys of lived bodies are obscured as the long complex human experiences of migrants and asylum seekers are reduced to a border crossing and to preventing that border crossing. Just as historians and theorists have shown how the nation's complicated relationship to slavery and apartheid was denied by regionalizing the problem, projecting it onto the deep south and creating an imaginary space region of backwardness, something similar is definitely taking place at the border today. By creating an imaginary crisis at the border, the nation can deny the real crisis of global apartheid and a failed immigration system, just as slavery contradicted national values and therefore had to be relegated as a characteristic of the peculiar institution of the South. The systematic endangering lives of asylum seekers also contradicts US values and must be relegated to the crisis at the border. The socially constructed national space of the border works to bolster the narratives the US seeks to uphold security and the criminalization of asylum seekers, and also defer responsibility for global apartheid, externalization policies that endanger lives, and a broken immigration system that some would argue uh, is, is broken by design because of the money it generate, generates. Uh, and also the undocumented cheap labor, another form of late slavery that it sustains in the US. But the border is not just defined by national regulation of space bodies and narratives. It is also a place where these narratives are tested by the hidden spaces, bodies and stories connoting homelessness, mobility, insecurity, global connectedness, shared space, shared responsibility and global economies. The migrants' narratives and histories, as Thomas now says, strategically destroyed and marginalized, Stories of lived bodies, when allowed to emerge, provide a humanizing alternative to reducing them to numbers, lines, flows, and smartphone apps, and can work to undo the narratives at the core of the social, imag social imaginary of the nation state. These people emerge as strong, resilient, resourceful, eager to work and contribute to the US economy, mothers, fathers looking for a better life for their children, children, dreamers, future US workers, immigrant hustle, people smiling with a sense of humor in the face of tremendous hardship, people who deserve to be heard, helped and appreciated, and that promise to positively contribute to US society. I just end by saying it is these people who deserve to be seen rather than hidden, relegated to the shadows, criminalized, cut off by policies of externalization, and left at the mercy of inadequate asylum claim, asylum claim processing in unsafe countries. Uh, I realize I'm preaching to the choir here, I'm sure, but the point is as a country and hearing the other talks, um, right, maybe not just America, we need to change the questions we are asking and the narratives we are telling. As long as the predominant narrative in the US is national security, nothing will change for the better. And of course, the the, the fact that national security are absolutely the same in, in America, even though it's not sort of my uh, area of expertise, but I am aware that the border wall building, the, the, the money that goes into the, the border patrol, um, very much security here is also driven by capitalism and um, uh, political economy. 
For more information on the Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes and for upcoming events, go check out the Sawyer Seminar website, linked in the description. This Sawyer Seminar series is made possible with funding support from the Mellon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.